Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel, we have Alan Weimar. Hello. Adi Angar. Hello. And me, Sasha Wolf. I'm kind of back. I've been away for a few weeks now, and now I'm back. So actually, we would have had a guest right now, but they got COVID. So they had to cancel short notice. So uh, just before they hit with this record button, we were like, okay, what are we going to talk about? And we realized that one thing we've never kind of done is just talk about elixir things we do right now, day-to-day, boring kind of work things, right? Like what, what, what keeps us busy at night thinking about the Elixir professor. Like just how is how am I using Elixir right now at work? What's cool? What's annoying? What's something I've learned recently? Um, so this is what we will be doing. I hope you take a few things away for yourself when you listen to this. So Alan, you just told us that you do like basic boring air quote stuff, but uh, you also have been working with this Java guy in an Elixir code base and there's some 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 hurdles to be overcome, let's say that. <laughs> Yeah, he's just not used to the way, you know, functional programming, number one, with this kind of immutable data. Because, I mean, if you're writing Elixir, it's a little bit deceiving, right? You can say, you know, X equals, and then later on you can do X equals again, and you're actually kind of rebinding. You're not changing anything, right? And so, like, what I've seen him try to do recently was like, okay, how come if I do an if statement, and I have, like, three lines of setting variables, and after that, things are, they're not changed, right? And I had to show him how you can use like a if statement and return something at the end and you can change something. Well, kind of change, right? You're basically rebinding and show him, you know, how you can make some very precise code, very readable code. It takes a lot of time. Like I, I looked at his code and I was like, yeah, this is very much procedural, like Java-esque, you know, lots of stuff, big function. And I showed him, <laughs> yeah, you left, but like, I think we all did that at the beginning at least. And then it took us some time to get into the flow of how you write Elixir. And I showed him the pipe operator. I explained him how it works. And I showed him, why not try like this? Why don't you try like making a data structure, you know, like 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 the con, right? For when we have with Phoenix and plug mm, applications. Mm. And then I have it pipe through a bunch of functions and those functions will describe what you're doing. And he's like, oh, that's that's amazing. I love that idea. And then like, I can tell he showed it to somebody else because in a PR following then, I saw code nearly identical to the pseudocode that I wrote to him. So it's, it's quite nice to see, you know, these ideas catching on, you know, and makes code so much more readable. Yeah, I think we've all seen that. I've also all done that. I mean, it's been a while since I started with Elixir, but I do remember that like the the initial hurdle, especially when you come from a more mainstream language, let's say that, a more mainstream paradigm or object-oriented programming, then this, this whole functional approach is like, oh, wait, what? Wait, wait, but I want to change it here. Wait, why does this not work? <laughs> So I'm wondering, like, yeah. was there anything in particular like you pointed him to, like to the website, or were you just sitting alongside, help, helping him figure things out? Sorry for cutting you off there, Adi, by the no, way. No, no, it's okay. Like I, I, I think what I first did was he showed me what he wanted to do, and then I think I just did like a one-line if statement, one-line if-else statement, and showed him how to set the variable like that. And then, yeah, I, I think he kind of understands because he's been looking at Elixir code recently and doing some PR reviews, so I think he starts to get it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, he, he's been programming for a while, too. So it's not like it's all brand new to him. So I think he can kind of understand what's going on. He actually used to work with OCaml, I believe it was, quite a while oh, back. So he has some functional, was it Camel or OCaml? I think it was just Camel, actually, if that makes sense. I forget the difference between the two. But there I'm is sure a language Camel, called OCaml. So OCaml yeah, I know there's, there's both, exists. I believe. Camel's so, older. Yeah, it's probably Camel, I think, because he's a little bit older than me. And so he, has, he knows about pattern matching stuff, right? So some of the ideas already caught on to him. Yeah, so it's, it's quite interesting to see you know, somebody struggling with this in terms of, and then how, and then when they finally get it, you, it's it's good. And actually, this has been probably one of the fastest people to get something that I've been trying to show things to. But yeah, that that's kind of been what I've been doing. And another thing actually I've been also doing is upgrading a lot of old apps from Phoenix 1.6 to 1.7 and removing the views, which takes forever, and converting from EEX to Heeks and converting all the Phoenix.html to Heeks style also. So that took me over a day just for one application, just converting all the templates. It took forever. Maybe you guys a day is pretty fast, dude. <laughs> yeah. Well, these are smaller applications, but still, it was painful. It's not easy, right? I was like, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it's also like with Heeks, you have to also, you know, limit your usage of the embedded stuff, right? Like uh, within the attributes and stuff. So it, it, it is it is not trivial at all. So yeah, day is impressive. I kind of wanted to like touch on that thing again, defining things inside an if block and expecting it to be outside. It reminds me of like, we talked about this thing. I just want to bring it up again, like in an organization that shall remain unnamed. 
people using <laughs> people using process.get and process.put to solve. Oh yeah, we talked about that. <laughs> I, I, I loved remember. it. I loved it. <laughs> There's this always this point like sometimes sometimes in my career I see code where I'm like, why was there never the point where you thought, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> right, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it, it, it's it's. I think it's if generally I've seen that happen when you know someone who doesn't know Elixir much learns about something and they are the only person who knows Elixir in the team and others ah, are yeah, learning okay. from that person. The pattern develops like that. Yeah, it's very very common. I think one thing you guys talked about, like pointing. I I, I need to give a shout out to this. Uh, Bruce State has something called uh, the CRC pattern: construct, reduce, compose. I think, or or the other way around. But uh, but but I think the point. Well, yeah, construct, reduce, compose makes sense. So uh, it didn't really, honestly. I mean, to be honest, I when I heard of it, it did not really, you know, vibe with me because I I had been doing functional for a while, but I started I've. I didn't really understand the importance of teaching that to someone. But when I started mentoring people who think differently than I do, literally every person I've mentored and showed, showed that to has really, that has really changed the way they start doing Elixir and use pipe operators. And that's like kind of what Alan was saying, right? Building that struct and like piping it through. So I think CRC, if any beginners are listening to the podcast, check out Bruce Tate's CRC. There's a couple of articles he's wrote, written about that. I think, and he has a couple other really cool ways of, explaining certain patterns as well. I think, I think Bruce is an amazing, <laughs> he's amazing at like explaining, simplifying complex things. He's, he's amazing at that. And CRC is an example of that. So check 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 out Groxio and check out CRC if you're new to Elixir, trying to find ways to abstract the learnings into digestible, catchy phrases. <laughs> I'm actually curious on like what's something you, you the both of you just cut on uh, like with upgrade to to Phoenix 1.7 because um uh, the application we're currently building doesn't yet have a lo lot of API surface so, so we haven't done that update yet um, just because there was not yet a really big need to and the the other applications which are delivering business value those don't really get touched anymore unless it's absolutely necessary so we probably won't be updating those to Phoenix 1.7 and so for everybody who's like listening to this and maybe also like in an Elixir job and they haven't done that upgrade yet. Like what, what, what is maybe something because like you already just said one a day was fast, right? So what is something you've, you've, you've felt you took away from that, like some pitfalls or some some annoyances and maybe also then like what's nice about the 1.7 Phoenix and beyond? I guess, I guess for me, like I think making components more universal, easier to use across all heeks, all HTML was mm -hmm. great. What something I actually really rely on because we had a lot of dynamically generated links with where part of the route was static. I wanted to make sure the route is working compile time. And that sigil P thing that they added, right? Compile mm -hmm. time verification of route, that was huge. That was huge for upgrading. Like, again, I advise a lot of startups, right? So I literally helped upgrade all their applications to 1.7. So that caught actually a few. <laughs> errors as well that we didn't even know in code existed so that, that was actually a pleasant experience but uh, there was no way it took a day for application it took a lot longer <laughs> so what was so difficult about it i think it's just tedious it's not simple to extract uh, to change your views and like extract functions the view functions to components or like a, a, a other versions of helpers that you might want it might also not always make sense to extract certain view functions to components so like you're making sure what really makes sense, where to define certain functions. And I think it also forced me to rethink what things should be components and what things should not be. So I, I think I think I probably took like the longer approach to upgrading. I could have probably, you know, done it faster, but I was taking that as an opportunity to learn. <laughs> so I think th that was huge. And I was also like making it a point to use the, C the sigil P also took a lot mm -hmm. of time. It's not always straightforward to know where to use it. But uh, again, we got advantages of using it, so it was worth it. Is that also your experience, Alan? Yeah, I mean, I, I basically am trying to keep up with the latest style like, with what they're promoting. And yeah, definitely the Sigil P thing was a little bit painful. And like, sometimes I was like, well, what, what is my, what is the, what do you call that? Well, actually, I kind of still like the path style more because you can still change the route and it won't matter. I mean, the only thing that Sigil P does is make sure that you have a proper path, right? So if you do change it, then you still have to go back and change all the sigil P's. So I feel like it's a little bit of a loss to have it, but I'm trying to keep an open mindset. I mean, the good thing is that you don't need to have a con, you don't need to have a socket. 
you don't need to have endpoint to make these things work. So I think that's a win. But it did take me a little bit of time to figure out how to do the full path URL. Do you know how to do that one, actually? Yeah, the, the URL, URL function, function, right? URL yeah, function, yeah, yeah. It took me some time <laughs> to figure that part out, too. I think they had, they might have added it later, but they had it in the yeah. upgrade notes, I think. But yeah, it's easy to glance over it. <laughs> but the, I went looking in the docs, I couldn't find it. And I was like, I guess this is it. And then I have a test for that and it worked out. So I was like, okay, cool. So I was a little bit surprised. Like, again, I like I feel like maybe it's a little bit of a loss. Like, I understand that you want to write that and, and that makes sense. And I had this problem with other developers who are working on Phoenix code with me. And I was like, no, no, you got to mix phoenix.php.x uh, routes so you can see everything. Or you can just kind of guess it based on the name and the way things are named. So I, I feel like it's a win for beginners. But for the part that if you do change the route name in the router, that could cause quite a lot of changes you had to go back and make. But it's going to, you know, you'll catch it, right? when you go to compile the app, I believe. So, don't know. Yeah. So. Yeah, I get what you're saying. But I also think, I mean, how often do you really change the route? I mean, except for maybe the, the initial development phase. I guess it also depends on, like, if it's like more of an HTML web application, yeah, then that might happen more regularly, right? But if it's uh, like an API, I hope you don't change it too often. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I think references to routes is what he's talking about, right? Not really changing the routes, but if you, but I guess, yeah, that might come from changing the routes too. I, I, I think I think for us, it really, I think the dynamic thing, really, at any, any links that are being generated dynamically, but the route itself is not dynamic because we hide a lot of how I write sidebars is like I have a like a way to do it and I hide and show links based on you know what's there right there's a configuration and that configuration being correct is very important and just getting a compile time warning is this oh man it was huge it was huge because if you're building a complex application where your side menu changes based on what page you're in there's like hundreds mm-hmm. of links you know, and I think two or three of them were like wrong and they were pretty important. So I don't know how the part was functioning without that, but at least it's caught it. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. That's nice. That, that sounds also very useful. Because um, we, we haven't done that particular upgrade yet, so I'm, I'm curious to see how it goes. It should be relatively straightforward at our application at this point, because like I said, we don't have a lot of API surface. Ooh, one thing I used just the other day was first time was live stream. Alan, have you tried that? So if, if your UI, you have a lot of components in the UI, you can stream updates as well without necessarily, like if one handle up, handle info of your live view is giving a lot of updates or mount is giving a lot of updates, you can stream and let the page build progressively. And that was very important in one of the applications. Actually, I can talk about it. It's, it, it's like a real commercial application where they run like, uh, you know, the clients can run thousands of simulations a second based on they can change, you know, oh, I want to change this property to have more square footage or whatever, right? They want to run a simulation mm-hmm. and see profit and loss. And one click runs thousands of simulations. And yes, the simulations are fast, but the data is a lot to load in HTML. It's nice to stream it and it, it works so good. Yeah, it must have been a lot of work to implement that. Yeah, I did see that in the docs, but I haven't haven't tried it yet. It's Phoenix Live you stream, right? Yeah. I literally just tried it like yesterday, April 19th. <laughs> yeah, that's a brand new feature, I think. Yeah. yeah. I'm also starting to wonder, when is Phoenix Live View going to be 1.0 at this point? <laughs> it's been, it, there's there's quite a lot of changes that keep coming, right? So I can see it never ever reaching that point. Yeah, I, I wonder that too. Is, is, it, is it JS? It's it, JS is not part of Live View, right? Or is it? It is, is it, part it of, is. It is. I mean, like, there, there is the, browser side part which like connects to the phoenix socket and then that's like all the yeah live view shenanigans oh no no <laughs> I, I mean i mean the js module they're trying to make the like they're trying to basically not uh, make it so that we don't need we don't need alpine right all the js dot functions is that part of live view or is that a separate package i think if it is part of live view that might be kind of like holding 1.0 they, they probably imagine live view to be like whatever css you want we don't want pedal stack marriage it should be self-sufficient minimum javascript code probably like do some more i don't know init functions is something they could do like with x init alpine like functions i think once maybe they have all the high level alpine functions, i think then js might be ready and maybe then that's where live view might be 1.0 it's a good hypothesis i'm not too sure what what's going on i still feel like they're they keep adding more functions and and also i'm starting to see a little bit more coupling than anything else I don't know about you, but like it seems like you can't do a lot of just like what's called you know the dead the dead views right so much. They seem to be yeah. steering away from that, which which is open to that. But I'm just a little bit surprised because like the whole Heeks template it's in Phoenix Live View. It's not part of Phoenix. It's not even part of Phoenix template. It's a different one, right? It's all part of Live View. 
the Hicks stuff. I thought they moved it to Phoenix, but I might be remembering it wrong. Um, no, I don't. I, maybe if something's changed, but that's not what I've seen. So I, I do like the Hicks stuff. It is quite nice that you can get the compile time stuff, which is nice. But yeah, yeah I mean, I don't know. I'm still and I'm still trying to work my way around these the new uh, style we use to use you know whatever colon HTML and like the the new kind of view thing. I don't even know what those things are even called actually. Did they have a name for those? They're not called views anymore, right? You know, you're looking a little bit confused. Do you know what I mean? So when you when you migrate an app from Phoenix one dot six to one dot seven, Phoenix view has now been removed by default. Of course, you can add it back in. I removed the view to try to get back to the way Phoenix 1.7 stuff works, mm-hmm. so that way I can be familiar with it. But now you move everything into controllers, which to me seems a little bit confusing. Right. I think they call them function components. Is that what they call them now? Okay. Yeah. I don't know they, what to call it. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, unified function components. I think okay. that, I mean, both, so you can like put them in controllers and call embed, right? Well, I like the fact that we're kind of like back to, I think you did Ruby on Rails before, right? Mm-hmm. So do you remember Ruby on Rails where you can kind of say, oh, if the format is JSON, do this. Format is HTML, do this. I feel like that's what we're kind of going back to, which is interesting. You know what I mean? Because like you could say, okay, render this. And then depending on the format, it'll choose JSON or HTML, which it seems like to be what we have now. Right. I kind of like that style, to be honest. But this... Well, I thought that was always there. Depending on the... Not, I haven't seen it so clear before if that's what they had before. Because you still would... have two different pipelines, right? Oh, I see you're saying. So you put both in the same function. I think you can. Okay. I, maybe maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know. At least now they make the formats much more clear to me. Interesting. Have I haven't two. tried that yet. That's what I thought I saw. Maybe I'm going crazy. I, I don't usually do a lot of... It. Usually I use GraphQL, so I don't do a lot of the JSON API with it. Got it. So yeah, and I see what you're saying. In, in Rails, they have like base... You can match on format for... Uh, or, or the return type, HTML do this, JSON do this. Yep, I have not seen that in Phoenix yet. That, that'd be interesting and weird. <laughs> so that's Phoenix upgrade. Sasha, what has been up in Sasha world? I mean, I've hinted at it a few times ago in the past, but um, me transitioning to more of a, like a management position also means that me no write code anymore, or at least a whole lot less code. So depending on how long this will go on, I might at some point drop out of this podcast and make room for somebody who actually writes links for a living. You know, but what I've been very much involved in is like architectural work on discovery work. And also I've been dabbling a little bit with building an, a Discord bot like on, on my personal side. And, and that is like honestly the, the last point in time where, where I've been writing some Elixir. And the thing there was, I'm not sure how applicable this is for everybody else listening, but um, I, I wanted to, basically I wanted to have like a system where the internal logic of the bot was not specifically tailored to being used by Discord, but honestly like at, at that point any any kind of chat application would, would have worked, right? Um, so what I wanted to do was was like apply a principle called uh, imperative shell and functional core, so that like the, the the core business logic of the bot was like okay, like, oh, I've heard of comes it. In. <laughs> I wonder where Adi. <laughs> we talked about it before recording, <laughs> but like, the idea kind of was like maybe maybe I can can give you the gist of what, what I wanted to build. And um, so I wanted to build like a like a lightweight um, application managing bot because we have like I'm part of a Discord server, like also on, on the moderation team where we screen people before joining uh, for a few things, and we are using like a weird mixture of multiple bots to kind of make that work, and it does the job, but it's a bit annoying, honestly. So I was thinking, hey, this is like maybe. Like of a scope small enough, I always wanted to double with Discord bots. Why don't build this, right? Um, so I was thinking, okay, like when a message comes in, or like when a user presses a button, that's like when I kind of want to start an application, and then like uh, the bot should be able to say, ask a few questions, and like wait for the person to respond, and when they respond, it ask the next question, and then after all the questions have been answered, ping somebody, hey, this application is kind of ready to be reviewed and to be followed up, right? That is kind of the gist of things, and the idea I had was okay, honestly. Discord land, all of those are threads and messages, of course, and buttons, blah, blah, blah. But like the core business logic is about, hey, I have an application, I want to open an application, I want to get a message, I get an answer, I want to send the next question. And that is like where things got a bit weird and where I also went fully into bike shedding and I just built the weirdest possible things. It was fun, <laughs> but it was not productive at all. <laughs> because I, I was like, okay, how could how do I encapsulate this? Okay, like a message comes in and now I 
kind of want to give a deck the intent to open an application, which means to open a thread. But of course, like I have then to wait for the thread to be opened before being able to send the first message. And then I, I started to like, how do I do this? Like in a gen stage pipeline, because the library I was using was basically a gen stage pipeline for the whole, for all of the Discord messages. And then like you end up, with, okay, now I need to kind of look at ordering because I mean, I don't want to do like send the message first and then open the thread. That doesn't make any sense. Or first, like how, how do I encapsulate all of this in like in a way that makes sense? And I'm, I'm sure there are good answers to that. Uh, just that was the point where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to read a book. <laughs> I'm not going to do this right now. Then I never return to it. But yeah, that, that, that is what's been going on in, in such a line. I really found it frustrating, honestly, that there is no library out there, no thing which, I don't know, like that does this, maybe I'm weird, but maybe that does this whole, I want to like transport events through my system and I want to have some ordering and I, I want to have like certain guarantees. But there's nothing out there which like, offers that out of the box like uh, either it's like something like GenState which is very much tailored I mean GenState is amazing right but it's very much tailored for like high throughput and like so on and so forth and it doesn't it drops a few things like ordering like it specifically says in the documentation ordering is something you need to take care of yourself and I find it so frustrating that like these these simpler things are not readily available there's for example there's a library called event bus which is also like very popular on hex like it has a whole bunch of of, of, of downloads and there's a whole bunch of stars on github but like literally in the readme it says like this is not really production ready <laughs> that is like, okay i guess i look elsewhere <laughs> and like i don't know i want basically what i would love to see is like something like commanded with, which is like cut up into more smaller parts where I can then pick and choose, where I can say, hey, this projection thing over there based on some events which are persisted, that sounds useful. Give me just that. I don't want all of the command stuff. That's too complicated for my use case. But there isn't. There just isn't. And uh, I mean, at that point, you're like asking yourself, maybe I should build it myself. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I came from this from, hey, I want to build a Discord server, a Discord bot for this Discord server. And now I'm talking about Hey, maybe I should build a smaller subset of commanded, right? So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, Adi, you said before before I started rambling that earlier also that like at an application you've been working on, you also were frustrated at like some of the the, the, the the things that were imposed on top of you because of libraries. In this case, I think it was commanded. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Again, I think I do want to put a disclaimer. It's, it's an awesome library. And, you know, it is great. amazing, seriously. Yeah. Like, I mean, thanks to everyone who has built it, contributed to it, maintaining it. Uh, by no means, this is like, you know, a diss to them. It's just no, no library is perfect, right? And this is where we, I think, it is great if you want to build a simple application, completely even source, don't not think too much about it. It gives you everything out of the box. And I think that's what their kind of like customer segment, primary customer segment is, right? They, they're tar it's targeted towards those people. Now, where my current company is, we are operating at, I think the most, the highest scale any Elixir application in production is operating on. No one is processing this many events, for lack of a better word, per second every day <laughs> consistently. I can guarantee that. And I think at that level, if everything is even sourced, the way Commander enforces it, it just creates a lot of latency, a lot of bottleneck, and and and, and you know uh, unnecessary database transactions that you know might not be needed. So that's where some flexibility, some more explicit, like something as simple as separating projections, being able to just do simple projections through a subset of streams that come in. I'm not even called event, whatever, right? Some messages that come in, do simple projections by itself would be great, right? Instead of having to, yeah, instead of ha having to event source all of your data that rely on each other. And uh, anyway, it just creates a lot of unnecessary overhead uh, to manage, especially when you get to, to a scale. And also when your application gets comp complex, right? When, it's, when you need to add more data types, more relations to your schema, it unnecessarily complicates adding associations and stuff. And you have to find weird ways of dealing with potential lag and increased uh, latency there. So yeah, that's my that's pretty much it. I do I did like where you were going with the whole simple way of managing producer consumer thing like gen stage, uh, Sasha. I'm a huge fan of that. The ordering, add a bottleneck, add a couple gen servers to manage ordering, right? Like I, I I'm a fan of that. If you want to just process things, produce and consume things 
and maintain order, use a gen server. If it's too slow, scale it and do a leader selection, right? Which is which is a lot simpler than commanded. <laughs> yeah, but it's uh, at that point again, like I have to do all of that, and that is yeah. I'm not. I mean, I'm rent. I mean, this is like complaining on like a very high level, you know, <laughs> like because all of these libraries are doing uh, amazing and they're great at what they are, what they want to do, and what they're supposed to do. I just I feel there is a gap in like. And the tools we have in Elixir, which are between this, hey, this is like super cool for like if you're high performance, right? Like you have a, you need to have a high throughput and use this. Obviously, like takes away a lot of the complexity for doing specific things. And then there's like the other way, like okay, to do everything yourself with gen servers, which are also, I mean, like we've talked a whole bunch on the show about how, what how powerful the, the tools are OTP provides you. But I feel there's a gap between that where it's like this thing does this library does this thing this thing only in a robust way and and you can use it in ways you decide you know um because i think what you just talked about adi and where, where i'm on your page um is i also used commanded a whole lot and and like when in the right scenario it's an amazing tool which takes a lot of work off your hands but it's a it's i think the main issue i'm sometimes having with it it's like it's a framework like you it dictates what kind of code you have to write in which way and then you plug that into the framework right and there's no at least i don't know uh, no way to break out of it. And what I would love to see is like just having more of a collection of, of libraries, like the Unix kind of approach, like a small things which do one thing well. And I feel like that, that is like where the gap kind of exists, where it's like, hey, like I said, I don't want to be fully event sourced, but I want a thing which like, like which takes events from my database and p- puts them to 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 con- subscribers and consumers and like allows me to do subs- projections easily, right? Like, yeah. Basically, what Commander does, but only that, please, only that. <laughs> and then right. I want a thing which which like for example, the whole like what I love about Commander is like how it manages the whole life uh, the whole um, life cycle of aggregates. Like it it loads them from a database, it applies them, and then it it just get this module in this in this you know, just get this module and like do your thing return some things and that's all managed inside of a process give me that but only that right <laughs> i don't know that is like where i feel the, the, the ecosystem maybe is not quite big enough yet to, to have libraries which like fill out these smaller niches in like a robust way because i mean as i mentioned earlier there's this event bus uh, library which is also super popular and i'm pretty sure it is being used in production but the author literally says in the readme in like an, in big bold text this is not production ready and yeah <laughs> Just frustrating yeah. sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I would be very curious to try Broadway with simple process groups for ordering, right? That's the only problem with Broadway, right? Mm. With event stuff. Yeah, aggregates will be hard. <laughs> You'll probably have to write all the messages at a, in a different store. But I think that's the only thing that Broadway is missing. Aggregates and ordering, right? That you can get from Commander. If you're going the simple even sourced route. So like I have used a little bit of PG2 module in Erlang to make sure all the mm-hmm. distributed mm-hmm. process, the ordering order is maintained, right? I would be interested in trying that out. Yeah, Sasha gave me that idea basically today, so I appreciate that. <laughs> it's also where 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 I feel. I mean, for example, like the, the, the this event bus library again. Like uh, again, I think it's a cool library, but like it has what it does internally. Like it persists things in an ETS table, and that is like where where I feel there would be the opportunity to say, hey, this is just one way to persist things right like um, by default i offer this ets adapter yeah. but i also you can you can build an adapter on your own and give me that power please like sometimes sometimes i want to make the decision hey you know what ets is amazing and super fast but for my particular use case i just want to have the guarantee that it's persistent in a database and yes that can become a bottleneck but in my specific scenario i value the the guarantee that it's safe into my database before it's delivered to my subscribers higher than the bottleneck i create right let me make that choice for fuck's sake <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, the alternative as well. I build it completely on my own with like um, maybe I, I'm use a registry with like just push things out. But then again, it's like all of me. Like <laughs> ah, and the same here. What you just laid out with like PG two. If you ever end up building something like that, Adi, give me the choice to say I don't need PG two here. Just, just right, push right, it right, this right. one process. Please, right? <laughs> yeah. It is having built and maintained an open source library for four years. It is very hard to make things extendable and the whole adaptive pattern <laughs> yeah. makes sense at, at surface level. It's just a lot more effort on the maintainer to mm-hmm. keep that up. And I think that's, so I, uh, yeah, I, I totally sympathize with what they're saying, but I also sympathize with people, you know, people who create commanded and event by But yeah, I, I, I think I that's it. where, I think we need to create that demand for them where it is worth it for them to do that, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. There should be enough people and that, that all comes from uh, you know, like create and what he said earlier, Sasha, like user base, right? What kind of people are who who is using commander? What are they using 
market for companies that have an alternative, have enough funds to build their own commanded. Yeah, are they yeah. the ones generally who are wanting this or smaller companies are wanting this too? And I think that's where contributing more to open source, even by creating issues and upvoting, downvoting things. Like if someone wants X feature, upvoted, that's also a contribution to open source. You are saying that this is needed in the community. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, Honestly, I'm not really in a position to complain. I have actually computed, uh, contributed to Commandit a few times, but the, the thing I just talked about, I could have also like articulated and put into writing and opened an issue, right? Never done that. <laughs> so who am I to complain right now? <laughs> but um, it just from like really the naive engineer perspective, I want to build this little hobby project and I, and I want to have this one thing, like kind of what gen stage and stuff, but it doesn't have to be this big, right? Like give, give me something smaller, which does the same kind of job. Let me make decisions that make sense for my particular use case and don't so i don't have to build all of this myself right and that is like where i'm like eh, there's nothing there to build that niche and i find it annoying <laughs> let's see I mean, maybe i actually will build it myself at some point but it's also the area where i don't have a whole lot of experience like i mean I, i've worked for years now with elixir and otp but like actually like what like i said what commander for example does with aggregates and processes like i've read through the source code and i think i grok it but i haven't build something like that in production kind of quality. So the libraries I, I try to build, I mean, what you just said earlier, Marty, with like uh, open source libraries and allowing people to 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 change and like plug things in. The libraries I try to build are always super small because then I, first of all, I can finish them quickly. And second of all, well, there's just not much need for like extensibility at that point in time. Um, yeah. I just don't never need to cross that bridge. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, what about you? Like, what is, is there something like, like that's, like, is there, does its story resonate with you? Does its frustration resonate with you? I'm frustrated all the time. So, <laughs> really, every frustration bugs me. I mean, I was frustrated to have a conversation with a developer today about how testing is, has no benefit until later. I'm like, really? Serious? You know how many times like I've avoided debugging code because I had tested code already? He's like, no, it's not true. I'm like, I've been doing this for nine years. You've been doing this for like one year. So I don't understand where you get this idea that... <laughs> what where, where does this stigma come from that testing is like gonna... Like I understand like it takes time to write code, to write test code, but at the same time, I feel like it, we save time and we have better designs once we have a test to beat, right? I mean, do you still have this conversation with, with your developers? Yeah, I mean, as someone who tries to have 100% code coverage and I like to test everything... I, I, uh, yeah, I, it's always a struggle, always a push, right? Um, I think it comes down to, I think what Louis Pilfold, when we had him, right, uh, the creative gleam, he said he is a huge fan of static checks. He's a huge fan of before running, deploying, building, whatever you want to call it, your application, if you can do checks, he's a fan of it. And typing is like the epitome of that. But testing is like the first layer of that right so like whatever you can add to your unit tests your yeah any kind of checks i think the better it is because other than if you don't have that you're relying on the ability of humans and humans make errors and as as, as a human who makes a lot of errors I, I i like that's why i like adding more tests and static checks so i uh i can feel i am first of all very pleasantly surprised alan that you're frustrated about test coverage and stuff because you you're the was you, you, we used to we used to butt heads kind of a bit on test coverage so very happy to hear this and i can totally feel that frustration well i don't strive for 100 percent test coverage but i mean like at least the, the logic like testing the ui i think is negotiable to a certain extent but testing like working with apis especially if we're working with a financial client who's got to send trades and the number one thing is it has to be reliable like that to me is super important yeah and, and they're like okay Okay, well, the UI keeps changing. It's like, well, then don't test the UI. Just test the the logic code that talks right. to the API at least, and you know you're handling everything yeah. properly. Because totally. that's the one thing we got to make sure we have. But yeah, I mean, with with a language like Elixir, yeah, you don't really have that the type checking necessarily, right? Because APIs can return all kinds of crazy shit. Like I've had weird API give me like UAT working and then production not working for the same damn API call, and I tell them, and they say, really? Uh, yeah, really. <laughs> Oh, that's weird. We got to check that out. Like, what do you, I don't know what to do with these guys. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know how to handle stuff like that. That's when I'm still kind of debating with people about is the testing part. 
Yeah, yeah I think it's... Test coverage is another, right? Sorry, this is something else that kind of came up in the same realm. So we're running the mixed test cover and the default is 90%, which I think is already quite relatively low, right? So what I found in my in one of the teams I'm in is that they tend to try to keep the mixed test coverage at 90% rather than going above and beyond. So they use that 90% as like just to pass. And I've had like product managers talk to me, hey, do, can we just like let this one slide because we had to get this feature out? I'm like, really? They didn't even test the feature with any code. They just test it locally. And yeah. you want me to let this one slide? You know that you're starting like that snowball effect, right? It's just going to get worse and worse. Totally. Yeah, dude, I totally agree. Um, I, I think test coverage, as an advocate of test coverage for the last few years, it's very, very hard. And this is where I think, it's also like, I think, great opportunity to grow as a senior engineering leader where you are trying to convince other stakeholders, right, of why it's important and finding like middle ground, like that's what that negotiation about, right? So I think number one thing that I try to do is go for 100% code coverage, but explicitly ignore things that are not tested, right? In that way, uh, I think I've mentioned this multiple times in the podcast, if people might be sick of me saying this, but in that way, you know, if you have 90% code coverage, that means you push 10 new lines and you don't have one of those tested, it's it will still pass. But if you have 100% code coverage and explicitly ignore things and you push 10 new lines, all those 10 have to be tested and you have, or you have to explicitly ignore those lines, right? So that's like the first thing you're like oh you don't have to test everything let's explicitly ignore things and if you find something that you cannot test let's put that in ignore and now the pms come in right and having worked in a startup that maintained 100% code coverage i totally listen like literally oh we need this yesterday right we don't want to find a way to test it okay this i'm going to do a little bit of self-promotion too uh i built this very small tool called coveralls utils i thought i'll add more features to it but one of the features that it has it has a magic comment that you can add coveralls ignore and add a due date to it. It's like, okay, we have this release going on today. In two months, we have a feeling that things will get better. So after two months, this ignore comment will be ignored by the CI and the CI will break, right? So finding ways to add, I think CI is the, if you find a way for your CI to break, that's the best thing, right? So like, okay, let's not test this right now, but I want to test it later. Let's make sure the CI breaks later. So I think that's like the compromise I try to find, but it is still a huge uphill battle being an advocate of test coverage, especially in a bigger team where you're not the head of engineering <laughs> like I am right now. A lot of my coworkers, I think we are still not ready for 100% code coverage. I think a lot of them individually in their projects do strive for 100% code coverage, which is awesome. But I think we have ways to go for 100% code coverage. And we also have like, you know, real world problems like the app is already built it would take a lot of effort to find what files to ignore and set up coveralls and all that stuff so i i, I get all that but it is frustrating <laughs> i have thoughts on that but it's like this this leaves the realm of what are we doing there today <laughs> um, because like some, something i've been thinking a lot about recently and i think i also mentioned that a while ago is that what we do when we build software is we optimize for success right like we try to to make the thing work most of the time and what you actually want to do i feel when you have a ci system is you want to optimize for failure what i mean by that i mean that success ought to be a byproduct of like your ci pipeline so what you just laid out for example when it fails in the best possible CI scenario, I would actually maybe expect that this thing generates some warnings before that, right? Like yeah. this due date is getting dead. And that wa those warnings are not just in the logs of your CI pipeline, which nobody fucking reads, uh, yep. but they actually maybe get commented on like your pull request, right? Like they get visible. A really amazing CI pipeline would give me all the information I need to fix the problem at hand without even having to look at the logs in the first place. Agreed. That is what I mean when I say optimize for failure. You know, like you optimize the failure scenarios and you make it as easy as possible to glean the relevant information from the failure. Because I'm honestly, I mean, like I totally get why you're saying like with due date, but if that just rolls around with nobody, like everybody kind of forgot about it, right? And then the date comes around and I'm the I'm the asset who now has to build the test because, well, it's suddenly my pull request, which broke because of this new date being reached. I would be annoyed. I would honestly be annoyed. Well, well put, that in a, put that in a separate periodic uh, uh, CI trigger. Oh, okay. Yeah, then fair enough. Yeah, fair, fair, fair enough. That makes sense. And I guess that, that kind of goes into the direction of optimize for failure, right? Like where you where you catch those things in a separate right. system, like where you have to monitor it and visible. Yeah. I feel the CI tools of 
today are not built with this idea in mind, like to make it easy to optimize for failure. Like for ex for example, like when 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 a, when a CI when a test case breaks, I still need to click on the thing, go to the log, see what what, what broke the test case. There's, I mean, I can I can build things then to maybe put that into a comment on my GitHub issue, but it's not it's not like the 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 assumed thing you want to do you know what i'm saying yeah. i mean github actions is pretty good <laughs> yeah, but I, even, even there like i say i run this test case and when the exit code is like uh, right like it's an error exit code and then i stop the execution there but there's no easy way to be saying hey the output from this like maybe maybe take that and put it into a github comment i have to explicitly do that i have to code that up and it's well, not it's, the it's, it's a simple github action to do that yeah but it, i have to do it myself it's not like there where, where three lines <laughs> Yeah, still, yeah right. I, I would have, I would love it if like like a CI tool came around the corner, which just says, "Sure, you can do that, right? Like you can just run it in exit code and then look at the logs." But we also offer you like a thing to say, "Hey, run this command," and like when it fails, grab something out of the output and and, and give, make it to me available immediately. Right? Like like come with this out of the box and offer me that. You know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, I think they yeah. they probably hesitate to do that because I think many teams might not want every CI build to add a bunch of comments to their GitHub pull request. And they might be, I don't know, they probably don't want to be intrusive, but I, I, I totally see what, what you're saying. I think one thing I really like what you said, Sasha, uh, I think I think optimizing C of a failure, it's, and it being tied to the success of your product or your application, it's so important to understand that and so important that people learn as engineers, learn to update CI, feel comfortable to go into mm -hmm. your CI configuration files, make changes. Because it is more on the engineering side. People think of CI as like more DevOpsy or whatever. No, it's it's closer to the application side, closer to the application development side. Because you know what things can break, not just from a unit test perspective, but from an application perspective. Before even a Docker image is built, <laughs> you know best. So yeah, super important. Like uh, I, I made an effort. I think honestly, twenty eighteen. Uh, I was being mentored by the CTO of the company and he literally told me, hey, can you spend two days just thinking about how can you make a CI better? I was like, what, what do you mean? Like, just, we just want to make CI better completely open-ended. And that made such a big difference to me because in that, like, oh shoot, two days of me just thinking about this, we just made it so much better. That means I should always think about it. Whenever a CI is running, I'm like, yeah. hmm, what else, yeah. what else can I do? Just spend five minutes thinking about that. And the more you tinker with CI configurations, the more you'll internalize how CI works and more ideas you'll have as you code and make things. So it's very important, I think, as an early mid-level engineer before you get mid-mid-level, like be comfortable changing the CI. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, like, I found it interesting what you just said that they potentially didn't do that because people might have found it to be intrusive. Then I would ask, well, why is it intrusive, though? And I probably the answer to answer that is probably, oh, because then it posts a bunch of warnings every time, like in my podcast. And I was like, exactly, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, if you had that from the get go without much effort, and that is, I think, the point I'm trying to make. If it's not much effort to do it, then more people are going to do it. And then, if you, for example, in an application, do it right off the door, well, you never accumulate 500 warnings. Because it is annoying. Yeah. And those warnings are there for a reason, usually. I mean, like sometimes, sometimes sometimes these are false positives, and that is something that should be taken into account when like building these systems to give an option to say, hey, this warning over there, seriously, just ignore it because that's just, I don't know, a library we're using, it's outdated, we don't have a... Wait, like there are valid use cases where you're saying this is a warning to be ignored. But in general, if my if my CI pipeline tooling would be more, for example, like the Rust compiler, right? Like, which says, hey, this is exactly the error you're having because because of this like, over here, and this is probably what you were intending to do, and just make that like, available to me easily without me jumping through a number of hoops. Oh boy! <laughs> Sign it's me up. GitHub Actions does that. If if in GitHub Actions the last command with exit code one is this file, this line, it adds comment to the uh, uh, oh, PR. Okay. Yeah, GitHub Actions does that. I was not aware then, but yeah, that, that goes directly directly in the direction I'm talking about. Yeah, I, it just it doesn't do the obviously the ability to like grab things, change it, and like interpret things and do it automatically it needs more smartness, right? But GitHub there's a there's a specific GitHub action that allows you to do that too. I can put links to those in, in the show notes. Yeah, maybe we should do that. But yeah, that is that is something like I said. It's not quite up day to day, but it's 
Yeah, and I've got the frustrations I sometimes have. With I totally stuff. agree. I, I think I think this is why I I honestly feel GitHub Actions is the best CI if you're using GitHub. It's the best CI. <laughs> it's the Mac iOS Mac OS X sorry argument like same hardware same software like same same Git repository same CI like the the reason why I said like GitLab was the CI was so well integrated and now GitHub Actions is like kind of in the similar category. Okay. I feel like everybody of us has talked about the things that are busy at work. So actually, I haven't talked about it, but I've talked so much today. <laughs> I, think, I think we could probably we could probably call it. Yeah, yeah we can wrap it up. Yeah, it's getting I, I late would, for Alan. He yeah, I would tired. also like to do like a panelist episode in the future just about database Elixir specific database optimizations because I've been dealing with a lot of scale lately, and I think I could not find a podcast episode about that. So it'd be a cool one to do in the future if we don't have a guest. Sounds interesting to me. Okay, then um, let us go to picks, I guess. So, Alan, so you don't fall asleep while we record. What are your picks for this week? Yeah, I just have one pick. I recently beat Alan Wake, and I started up on Alan Wake American Nightmare. I don't know if you've played that one or not. I have played that, and it was not like the reviews back then were like, meh, but I personally enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, you know what? I almost thought I beat it, but then I forgot that you have to do the same three missions three times. So I did it two times. And I was like, great, I'm going to beat this because I stayed up late last night trying to beat it just to clear out my Steam catalog. And no, still got one more time. The only thing is you do the same three levels three times, but at least it's not exactly the same. Like there's a little bit of a twist. But yeah, it's it's interesting. If you like the first Alan Wake, I think it's kind of a filler until Alan Wake 2 comes out, which I think is November this year. Howdy, I think you're... Wait, there's an Alan Wake 2? I didn't know. Holy yeah, shit. Yeah. <laughs> I think they just talked about it in, in last November, at least, that they're going to release it a few... Or like last year, end of last year. Howdy, you know more than me. You maybe... You should say. Like, I don't know no. about this game, but it is. You're right. It is coming out. You're right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of cool. Like, I, I, if you haven't played it, like, you, it's the interesting thing is that you use a flashlight to kill the darkness on the people around you, and then you shoot them with a gun. So, it's definitely a spin on it. It does get a little bit annoying, but at the same time, uh, yeah, it makes things challenging. So, it's kind of fun. This this one, if you played the first one, but not American Nightmare, American Nightmare does more guns, more action, I would say. So, yeah, it's it's okay. It's a fun twist on it. So, I think it's fun to check out if you like the first one. Cool. Adi, what are your picks? Yeah, I got a video game too. As I mentioned last time, now that I don't work for a startup, I'm able to play a lot of video games on top of sleeping more. So I've been going through my list and a lot of that had Naughty Dog games. I played The Last of Us finally a couple of weeks ago. And last week I played Uncharted The Lost Legacy. I think it came out in 2017. It's the sequel to Thief's End, which was a very popular Uncharted game. But I actually preferred The Lost Legacy, honestly. I think the storytelling was a little bit more immersive. I think, again, if you're playing Uncharted, you're playing it for the story, right? It's like very immersive. It's, it's it's a great backseat gamer game too if you like play with, like I play with my wife and she likes to watch. So this was like more fun from a story perspective, more picturesque, was really beautiful. And it's based in India and having grown up in India, there aren't very many games that are based in India and made so beautifully. So yeah, I, it, was, it was nice to see familiar territory in video games. So yeah. I would definitely pick Uncharted The Lost Legacy. Also, as I mentioned last time, and I had a couple of people reach out to me again, which is great, uh, but uh, I'm looking for a couple of founding engineers and my co- my company is still hiring. My team is still hiring one engineer. So there's at least three engineering roles that you guys can reach out to me for. Elixir, uh, two of them are founding engineers. So obviously, it'd be great to have founding engineering experience, but even if you don't, reach out. I would love an opportunity to work with you at some point, Ali. Not necessarily this time around, but at some point. Oh, I would love that, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have I have kind of two picks. One is, if, if there's any of you listeners out there which have kids and like to video game and like wonder how, 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 what is like a good introduction into video games with kids. Um, there are, there's two games I can recommend. Uh, the very first we played is a short hike and that is... Um, as the name kind of suggests, it's about a little short hike to the top of a mountain. And it's in so far amazing that it's like it's a top-down game with like a little bit of 3D-ish uh, pixel art look, but there's no combat or anything. It's really just about you walk around there, talk to people, solve little puzzles, and then get to the, to the top of a mountain. It's reading, so like we will have to be the one which reads things out to your kids probably. And this is so epic. This looks so cool. It's super cute also. Like it's just a very wholesome game. And like it was the very first game I played with my son. And that is just, like, there's no time limit, no anything. It's really a good start. It was five back then. And the second pick, same kind of idea for, 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 for like this, this 
for the whole what, what to play with kids is um, Mario Odyssey, actually, Super Mario Odyssey, because it has a health mode. And what the health mode does is you get like twice as much health points, like usually you're free with a health mode of six. And instead of like being reset when you like encounter like an environmental hazard, like purple sludge, whatever, or falling down, you like a little bubble comes and puts you where you were. And you lose one health point. And you can also just stand still and wait, and then Mario regenerates health points. So it's really a whole lot more approachable um, for kids. And there's also uh, there's always arrows. There's always arrows pointing you to where you have to go. And so that was actually the perfect segue into more challenging games. Because, I mean, Mario Odyssey, as all of you probably know, there, there are enemies in there and so on and so forth. But with all of this support, with this help mode, my son was still able like, to, to, to like, kind of get into it slowly. And so now, now we're playing for Mario Odyssey. And he's six now. I mean, this is my, my daughter, which is three, like, just loves to watch. It's like, oh, it's, oh this is Mario, right? <laughs> so, That's yeah, so it's, cool. It's a lot of fun. So those are like two games I can hi- recommend highly to play with kids. And my, my second slash third pick is a board game I just enjoyed immensely recently. It's uh, Root called probably everybody who who is into board games might have heard of it it's very popular but it's an asymmetric war board game which like no keep listening but uh it's it the theme is basically you play one of one of the factions in a in the forest like some one of the cats one of the birds the other is resistance which are the mice and the foxes and the, the rabbits and the fourth faction is just the vagabond which is just walking around and doing random shit and all of those factions play completely differently like completely differently <laughs> and that is that's kind of a charm of it because it's still very much balanced um, there's not really one faction which is that much stronger than the others they're all even all being able to manage and but still like everybody kind of plays their own little game on the same board trying to vie for control and that's just a very fun time so if you're into co- board games also maybe a bit more complex board games because this one is not super easy to grok then i can't even recommend gr- a root enough and secondly if you're into tabletop role-playing games there's even a root tabletop role-playing game which kind of plays in the same universe. It's a Powered by the Apocalypse game, if that says, told you anything. And the coolest thing about it, what I love is, they suggest that when you start a round of like of this tabletop role-playing game, then to play a few rounds of Root before they're like two or three rounds, and you kind of jot down on, on like which areas there were big battles, right? Like what were big conflicts, and just take that as the background for the world you play in with your tabletop role-playing characters. And that's just that's such a neat little thing i love it so those are my most of my picks this week very very nerdy i know i just ordered root at least. <laughs> <laughs> tell me how you like it I, I absolutely adore it it's a masterpiece of game design seriously. yeah it looks awesome the design looks awesome i mean like, it, it looks awesome but like really the the game design like how of these factions they really feel That's distinct. what i'm talking about it it, it yeah, just seems the, the game design seems awesome yep and there are a whole bunch of of, of expansions with like new factions i don't from what i've been told most of them are like at the, at the same level of quality at the one of the base game. So yeah, amazing games, usually. Yeah, those are my picks for this week. We should also make it like a regular fixture for you to pick kids-friendly games because you can also replace kids with girlfriend, wives, uh, whatever. Like it, it, it's an entry-level, <laughs> entry-level games. Yeah, I have a few now that I've been playing with my kids. I mean, just like as a spoiler, like a, there's a teaser here. What you what really goes well um, on the Switch, especially there are like these hidden hidden image, hidden hidden objects kind of games on the Switch where like you just have to tap little, these little things. That just works well. Um, and they actually, that is actually one of the things where the touch screen from the Switch is kind of nice, honestly. <laughs> so yeah, that's something my, my, even my daughter like, free can play already. Where like, tap, tap. So yeah, that works well. It's just nice because video games are something I enjoy immensely. So it's kind of nice now that I can start to share this hobby with my kids, you know? That's awesome. Okay, folks, it was a lot of fun talking to you again and I'm happy to have been back after this longer break. And I hope all of you enjoyed listening to us rambling about stuff, I guess. <laughs> and tune in next time with another episode of Elixir Mix. Bye!